This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Today's episode is one of the group of episodes in which I have some updates to make. The website stephenjtrigar.com no longer exists. So instead, every time I mention stephenjtrigar.com, know that you should go to alexandriamedia.org instead. I apologize for any confusion, but it is part of the process in transferring the Composer Chronicles over into my new company, Alexandria Media. So just remember, anytime that I use stephenjtrigar.com, just go to alexandriamedia.org instead. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hey there! I wanted to catch you at the top of the episode to let you know that my Patreon page is changing its name and URL. Rather than the page saying Stephen Trigar and the URL ending with Stephen J. Trigar, the page is fully transitioning over to the Composer Chronicles. All members of the Patreon page will continue to enjoy all the same benefits as before, including early access to ad-free versions of every episode, access to the Patreon podcast unscripted, and all other benefits one can find at higher levels. So, if you are listening to this episode and you hear me reference patreon.com slash stephenjtrigar, that is no longer a valid URL, as I have changed it over to patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you on my Patreon page. There was no possible way that he could have foreseen the colossal impact that the performances of his Scherzo Fantastique and Fou d'Artifice at the Salotti concerts would have on his career that day. The young Igor Fyodorovich Stravinsky had officially dedicated himself to the study of music after beginning his career as a law student at the University of St. Petersburg. He had earned a place as a private student in composition with Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov years earlier, and he diligently put forth compositions to both fulfill his dream to be a composer and to make his teacher proud. Whether or not the Scherzo and Food Artifice were successful in the eyes of the public and the critics on that cold winter day in 1909, it would be a small victory that wouldn't show its face until 17 months later, at the premiere of his first ballet, The Firebird. The larger-than-life ballet impresario, Sergei Pavlovich Diaghilev, was at the Salotti concert in St. Petersburg on February 6, 1909. His ballet russe was still months away from its inaugural season, but Diaghilev was searching for unique and innovative composers that would complement the exotic flair that he dreamed of bringing to the Parisian stages. Together, Diaghilev and Stravinsky would pave the way for a new Russian style of music and expose Russia's colorful culture to a world who craved to know its secrets. The Firebird was not only Stravinsky's first attempt at writing a ballet, but it was also Diaghilev's first commission specifically for his ballet russe. With it, Stravinsky and Diaghilev would spearhead the resurgence of ballet in a culture that believed the art form was on its deathbed. 
Since its premiere on June 25, 1910, the Firebird continues to cast spells upon its audiences with its magical score, enchanting plot, and mystifying choreography. It is regularly performed as a ballet and at concerts, either as a suite of the ballet's most memorable moments or as the full original work. The years of privately studying with Rimsky-Korsakov, despite his family's wishes, had finally proven its worth, and 110 years later, the sense of pride that Stravinsky felt after the ballet's triumphant success still lingers. This is the Composer Chronicles. And this is his story. To secure a spot for the 28-year-old Stravinsky in his Belle Russe, Diaghilev presented him with the task of orchestrating two piano works by Frédéric Chopin for a new ballet that was to be titled Les Sylphides. The composer Alexander Grazunov had already set several of Chopin's works for an orchestral suite in 1892 under the title Chopiniana, Opus 46 and it had already been staged by choreographer Michael Fokine years prior to the opening of the Ballet Russe. The original suite had contained only four orchestrated pieces, but Fokine insisted that one more be set in order to lengthen his ballet. When bringing Chopiniana to the Ballet Russe in 1909, which was known as Saison Russe at the time, Diaghilev insisted that all the dances be reorchestrated, apart from Glazunov's addition, requested by Fokine years prior. For Stravinsky, Chopin's Nocturne and A-flat major, Opus 32, Number 2, and the famous Grand Vos Brillante in E-flat major, Opus 18, were assigned. Once completed, his contributions, together with the contributions of Anatoly Lyadov, Sergei Taneyev, and Nikolai Cherpnin, expanded upon and redesigned Glazunov's Chopiniana to create a version now known as Les Cephides. Although his role in the creation of Les Cephides was subsidiary, Stravinsky completed his portion of the project without hesitation. Being associated with composers such as Lyadov, Taneyev, and Trepnin, and even Glazunov was incentive enough for the young composer. Les Cephides was a massive accomplishment for the Belle Russe and with that came the prosperous whispers of a rising new composer in their midst. Diaghilev recognized Stravinsky's growing popularity, and once again tasked the composer with orchestrating pieces by the Norwegian composers Christian Sinding and Edvard Grieg for a new ballet titled Le Orientale. This project, with the Grieg orchestration intended as a gift from Diaghilev to the dancer and choreographer Vaslav Nijinsky, solidified Stravinsky's place within the ranks of creative staff in the Ballet Russe. Le Orientale gave Stravinsky the opportunity to work with Arensky and Glazunov once again, with the added benefit of collaborating with Borodin. 
However, by the time Stravinsky began work on his sections of Le Orientale, Diaghilev had already approached him about writing his first full ballet, The Firebird. Coincidentally, Le Orientale and The Firebird premiered on the same program on June 25, 1910. Stravinsky says in his autobiography, It was highly flattering to be chosen from among the musicians of my generation, and to be allowed to collaborate in so important an enterprise side by side with personages who were generally recognized as masters in their own spheres. Although Stravinsky had worked with accomplished composers for Le Orientale, it was the Firebird that shined victorious that night. come as a surprise that Stravinsky was not Diaghilev's first choice for the composition of The Firebird. According to musicologists, Diaghilev had initially approached Lyadov, but no evidence has surfaced that Lyadov even accepted the commission. However, there is evidence to support that Cherpenin began work on the ballet. Chapman only completed one scene of the ballet before withdrawing from the project. The music he completed in preparation for the Firebird would be used for his symphonic poem The Enchanting Kingdom instead. The commission of the Firebird was then transferred over to Stravinsky. To his benefit, Stravinsky had total creative control over the music of the ballet. The scenario had already been completely fleshed out by Alexandre Benoit and Fokine the ballet's choreographer, and none of the music that was written for the ballet previously was required to be incorporated into Stravinsky's score. Stravinsky's score for the ballet utilizes a large symphony orchestra that resembles the orchestras found in the theatrical works of his former teacher, Rimsky-Korsakov. Although Stravinsky was still partial to the colors and timbre of Rimsky-Korsakov, he used the ballet as a means to test unusual rhythms, structure, and techniques that would bring him to prominence overnight and would define the later Stravinskyan musical language. In the summer of 1909, Stravinsky had returned to writing his opera Le Razenol. The progress on his opera had been stilted by Diaghilev's requests of orchestrating the pieces for Les Sylphides, but after they were completed, his work on the opera resumed. With the summer months coming to an end, Stravinsky received another telegram from Diaghilev, who had just arrived in St. Petersburg, unofficially and desperately asking the composer to take on writing the Firebird. All outstanding projects were halted as he strenuously labored over the score of the Firebird. He had not yet been offered the commission officially, but he would have the drafts of his score prepared when the commission would come in December of that year. By the time he had received the commission from Diaghilev, he only had a few months to complete it. Stravinsky became frightened upon hearing the commission of the Firebird had a fixed date in early 1910. Despite his insecurities and feeling he may not have been the right composer for the job, he took the commission and dedicated the next few months of his life to completing the score and proving he was worthy of the honor bestowed upon him. To make matters more slightly complex, 
the Belle Russe officially resided in Paris, and Stravinsky was still living in Russia and was unable to travel abroad until shortly before opening his new ballet. More about Stravinsky's preparations and life during the months before and after the premiere of The Firebird will come right after a message from today's sponsor. It's a brand new year, and you know what that means. It's time for us to reflect upon the past year and to set new goals. If you're someone who sets New Year's resolutions and never sticks to them, make this year a year you stick to those resolutions, especially if one of them is to live a healthier lifestyle. If you're like me, I spent so much of 2020 stuck inside my apartment. I couldn't go to the gym and most of the exercise I did was just walking around my neighborhood. What else could I do? I had no equipment, and at most I had a slight knowledge of minimal equipment exercising from my days in CrossFit, but even then those were a bit much. When I found Roy Belzer Fitness, that was when everything changed. Every weekday I wake up with an email in my inbox containing a new workout video, and I can do that workout whenever my busy schedule allows. Better yet, in these videos, Roy does the workouts with us, so his words of encouragement mean all the more to me who is sweating up a storm. But Roy Belser Fitness isn't just a daily workout routine. It's a community, a shoulder to lean on, and a body-positive space where all are welcome and are free from judgment. Via a private Facebook community, Every student gets to share their own journeys and encourage others to keep going. We all get to engage with each other every day, sharing sweaty selfies after workouts, nutrition tips and recipes, and posts that keep us accountable for one another. When you sign up for Roy's class, you not only get to join this incredible group of people to keep you accountable, you also get a free nutrition guide and the opportunity to win incredible prizes like free memberships and cash prizes. You can get back on your weight loss and fitness journeys right now when you sign up for Roy Belzer Fitness. Just go to RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up or click on the link in the show notes and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout to get 10% off your first month of classes. Again, that's RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your first month. This new year, let's stick to our New Year's resolutions together. Join me and a wonderful community of like-minded individuals living healthier lifestyles in a body-positive space with Roy Belzer Fitness.
choreography for the Firebird was created in sections. In order to stay on schedule, once Stravinsky had completed a section of music, he would present them to Fokin, who would then proceed to choreograph the completed section. Stravinsky would finally arrive in Paris, and he would do so in time to attend every rehearsal of his ballet. His relationship with Diaghilev and the other members of the company would grow exponentially. After each rehearsal, Stravinsky recalls ending those days with fine dinners and claret with Diaghilev and Nijinsky. He took the opportunity to learn about and study the personalities of these two giants of the industry to improve his position among them and to advance his own career. Although Nijinsky did not perform in the Firebird, Stravinsky spent a great amount of time with him during the time leading up to the ballet's premiere. To Stravinsky, Nijinsky was a quiet and backward young man. He noticed that Nijinsky spoke infrequently, and when he finally would, he would appear to be dull and intellectually underdeveloped. It was during these moments that Stravinsky observed Diaghilev intervening to correct him with such finesse that Nijinsky seemed to be the one who spoke with eloquence and charm. These rendezvous with Diaghilev and Nijinsky would not only be important for his current standing with them, but would be paramount to his professional relationship with them for years to come. More immediately, Nijinsky would dance the title role in Stravinsky's second ballet, Petrushka, and would go on to choreograph the scandalous and avant-garde The Rite of Spring. As for Diaghilev, Stravinsky would become the cornerstone and the headliner of his ballet russe. After the premiere of The Firebird, Diaghilev would commission Stravinsky to write five more ballets for the company, get his permission to adapt five pieces for the ballet stage, and stage several revivals of various popular pieces. Although the relationship would be rocky over the next few years, you cannot blame Stravinsky for attempting to build a solid foundation during these post-rehearsal dinners. Stravinsky marveled at Diaghilev's passion and tenacity for pursuing his goals and the meticulousness and strength he displayed while executing his plans. At times, the composer would be terrified by this boisterous and steadfast man who refused to budge when approached to alter or diverge from his opinions and goals. At the same time, Stravinsky would find this quality about Diaghilev to be encouraging, especially as a novice in their line of work. It gave Stravinsky the reassurance that no matter the cost or the struggle involved, their goals would be reached and pieces would see their premieres. Diaghilev's passion and devotion to his craft were all Stravinsky ever truly needed to know that writing The Firebird would be one of the best decisions of his life. When Stravinsky arrived in Paris for rehearsals, not everything was how he envisioned his project. The creative team and cast were already determined and selected. There were several dancers in the cast that had not been part of Stravinsky's vision for the ballet, particularly the roles of the Firebird and the Princess. 
Stravinsky had intended the role of the princess to be danced by Tamara Karsavina, whose grace and charm had inspired Stravinsky's rendering of the role. The role of the firebird was to go to Anna Pavlova, but she detested Stravinsky's score and therefore refused the role. Karsavina would accept the role in her stead, and the princess would be covered by Vera Fokina. In the end, Stravinsky had no complaints about the recasting of the roles. Every dancer performed their roles brilliantly in Stravinsky's eyes, even before the success after opening night. As for the scenario, Fokine fell in love with the fairy tale while preparing the choreography and expanded the scenario. This was of no issue to Stravinsky, as he was submitting music section by section. In the end, Stravinsky was never fully satisfied with Fokine's choreography. He felt that it was encumbered by too many details, and it caused confusion and coordination complications for the dancers on top of a score that was already rhythmically complex and demanding. Though the dancing was not all Stravinsky had hoped for, he found the spectacle to be breathtaking and magical. The bright colors and elegant designs of Alexander Golovin's set and Leon Basque's costumes complemented his score and brought life to the fairy tale. Regardless of the slight complications faced prior to the ballet's premiere in June of 1910, opening night was an immediate success. The widespread critical and public acclaim made Stravinsky an overnight celebrity, and Diaghilev would certainly take advantage of that achievement. Stravinsky's name would appear more frequently and prominently in promotions and programs as a marketing tool to draw in new audience members who had heard about this rising new sensation. People flocked to witness the phenomenon for themselves. Who was this mysterious man who drastically changed the musical atmosphere of Paris in one night? In the summer of 1910, just after opening the Firebird, Stravinsky moved his family to La Baule, on the west coast of France. His wife was expecting their third child, and he wanted his family to be closer to him while his career in Paris was rapidly climbing. That child would not yet be born until after they relocated once again to Clarence, Switzerland. From then on, until 1914, the Stravinsky family would spend their summers in Russia and winters in Switzerland. It was in this period that Stravinsky's reputation would continue to build steadily thanks to the productions and concerts of the Firebird, until it all erupted after the riotous premiere of the Rite of Spring. The success of the Firebird would inspire Stravinsky to have a concert suite of the score designed and ready nearly a year after the ballet's premiere. Within that same year, Stravinsky would produce a second ballet, Petrushka, that would eventually achieve the same success that his first ballet would. His score for the Firebird was incredibly dear to him throughout the rest of his life, so he would revise the concert suites twice more in his career, once in 1919 and once again in 1945. Once he had made his debut as a conductor, Stravinsky would travel around the world conducting his treasured score and sharing its message of hope to all who listened. Stravinsky's life would never be the same after the Firebird's premiere on June 25, 1910. Suddenly he was a superstar, 
and the musical world were turned to him for guidance. Every new work he produced was a new standard, and composers either wished to emulate him or break away from his grasp. Today we are still able to witness and listen to the spark that set the world on fire 110 years ago, and it never ceases to amaze all who experience its brilliance. This episode of The Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and produced by me, Stephen J. Tragar, with music by Trevor Kowalski, Brightarm Orchestra, Howard Harper Barnes, Martin Clem, Isaac Greger, and John Barsetti. Links to the music and sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on stephenjtrigard.com. You can follow The Composer Chronicles on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Podcast. That's C-H-R-O-N Podcast. Also, you can become a member of the podcast on Patreon. There you will get ad-free episodes of the podcast and member-only articles that expand on the topics discussed in each episode. Click on the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash Stephen J. Trigar. Next time, you will hear about Claude Debussy's struggles to get his opera Pelleas et Mélisande staged and his attempt to avoid the Wagnerian influence that was taking the world by storm. Thank you for listening today, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.